This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. This podcast is brought to you through support from our partner, the Calliopeia Foundation. Calliopeia envisions a future grounded in compassion, respect, dignity, reverence for nature, and care for each other and the earth. Other organizations they support include the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance and Led to Life. To learn more about Calliopeia's mission, visit calliopeia.org. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. I want to share a little note before we begin this extremely fascinating interview with Donna Haraway. Donna and I were blessed enough to both be receiving an incredible late spring downfall in the redwoods during this interview, so you will be welcomed with sounds of showers on my little metal roof at Cougar Mountain during this conversation. And that's what I love about doing this podcast, Deep in the Woods, is that the sounds of the rain or of the birds come through sometimes, so I hope you enjoy the little sounds of Cougar Mountain coming through in this episode. To do this kind of work over time, this kind of work and play with each other, really means you show up. You show up at the, at the demonstration, you show up at the meeting, you show up at the journal collective, you show up in the writing venture, you read each other's stuff, you read the pamphlets, you, you help write the propaganda, you, you become informed about struggles that are not necessarily your own, but which you're in alliance with, even sometimes from a great distance. Donna Haraway is a distinguished professor emerita in the History of Consciousness Department at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She earned her PhD in biology at Yale in 1972 and writes and teaches in science and technology studies, feminist theory, and multi-species studies. At UCSC, she is an active participant in the Science and Justice Research Center and Center for Creative Ecologies and has served as a thesis advisor for over 60 doctoral students. Attending to the intersection of biology, culture, and politics, Haraway's most recent works include Staying with the Trouble, Making Kin in the Chula Scene, 2016, a feature-length film by Fabrizio Terranova titled Donna Haraway, Storytelling for Earthly Survival, 2016, and Making Kin, Not Population, 2018, a publication co-edited with Adele Clark that addresses questions of human numbers, feminist, anti-racist, reproductive, and environmental justice, and multi-species flourishing. 
my goodness, Donna, thank you so much for being with us on the show. And like I was telling you earlier, the whole cast of characters at For the Wild podcast are just in awe that we get to interview you. So we are so honored, all of us here. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's really my honor and it's a pleasure to be part of your gang Mm. for the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. So I guess it feels fitting to begin today by grounding our conversation in what you called situated knowledges. And much of your extensive body of work is anchored in the commitment to disrupt the objectivity, essentialism, and neutrality assumed in Western tradition and so-called science and dominant culture. In contrast, your theory of situated knowledges revolves around a conscious acknowledgement that the production of knowledge, the institution of science, the academic canon, the so-called truth, and even this conversation always exist in relation to power structures and our unique embodied experience of the world. And in this time of so much widespread misinformation and gross misrepresentations of truth, why perhaps now more than ever do we need situated knowledges? There are a lot of ways to begin to think about the need for situated knowledges. My own writing and thinking and acting within that framework were in very strong, complex, long-term alliance with Sandra Harding and others who were developing feminist standpoint theory. Sandra, in particular, a an approach to what she called strong objectivity as opposed to the usual weak objectivity, which... Uh, divided the world into, uh, which kind of separated off the practices of scientific knowing uh, from their historical moment, from historical conjuncture, um, and uh, separated out the knowing practices from the complex historical embeddedness of the things known and the knowers. So with Sandra Harding, with Karen Barad, with Patricia Hill Collins, Nancy Hartsock, others, I uh, worked through, I worked out a notion of situated knowledges to affirm strong truths, not weak truths, truths that you would live and die for, truths that uh, are about who lives and who dies and whether the planet will flourish or not, whether earthlings will land on earth, that kind of thing, as opposed to a kind, so a kind of uh, situated knowledges are about a, a profound relationality and historical conjuncture, but not about relativism. It's relationality, not relativism, not epistemological relativism. So that uh, strong truths are made, but not made up. So the organism or the cell or climate change or uh, coral reef holobiome biology, those things are made in historical conjunctures Um, that Karen Barad theorized as a kind of uh, working through a genteel realism, working through a kind of intra-activity of all of the players to make the world this way rather than some other. These are strong truth claims. And surely now, when um, a kind of twisting of the work that I and others were doing uh, in feminist science studies, but also more broadly on what I'll call the left, although the left is a a strange term. Let me just use it as a collecting box for now. Mm -hmm. A large box that has many (laughs) holes in it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
the work that we were doing was in uh, a very strongly and unfortunately very effectively turned against us as nothing but social construction, as relativism, as um, opening up the possibility of alternative realities, uh, as opening up the kinds of Trumpian epistemological cynicism. And I think people like myself uh, who have been in this um, uh, struggle, uh, well, in my case, for more than 40 years, uh, have learned, I think, a lot about being much more careful of our idioms, of our alliances, of our insistences on claims, on the kind of situating of, uh, of the situating of from where and to whom we are acting, uh, so as to foreclose a kind of cynical relativism, which is everywhere these days, and which disables, for example, the struggle for reproductive justice, among other things, by making outrageous racist and misogynist claims about the nature of um, human pregnancy and human caring for the next generation, outrageous kinds of misstatements uh, of medicine, of science, of in the area of reproductive justice, certainly in the in the domain of climate justice. But there's also one more point I want to make before I let you ask another question, <laughs> and that has to do, that has to do with the way that situated knowledges insist on opening up and building complex contact zones with other ways of knowing the world, not so as to produce a kind of relativism, you know, to each her own little private culture or to each her own little part of the world. It's not to each her own diorama, but rather to open up contact zones for other ways of knowing, most certainly including indigenous ways of knowing, uh, that put into interrelationship, interrelation, intra-relationality in Karen Barad's sense, all of the ways of coming uh, into materialist connection with the world so that everybody in the contact zone uh, is transformed by the engagement so that one knowledge system does not dominate another and turn it into mere tradition or invading scientific knowledge or, or all of the different ways of turning um, situated ways of knowing the world into oppositional categories. It seems to me our job, if I can have this big box called we, is to build contact zones of complex entanglement where all of us are transformed by the engagement and in which scientific knowers do not presume in advance that they have the capital T truth even while holding on to our very strong truth claims. So it's, it's a very, um, it's a risk-taking historical engagement with each other uh, that I think we are, that we must have in these times of, tr of tremendous urgency. Wow, Donna, there is so much there in your response that I already cannot wait to listen back to sit with... <sighs> all that you were bringing into your response with that. So thank you so much. I'm my head spinning, but I also have so many other things that I want to get into. So maybe I'll, I'll pause on my responses to that question and come back to it when I have a little, a little more time to think on it. Um, Cause I, I really also want to return to your essay, a cyborg manifesto, which was first published in 1985. And in this piece, you inhabit the figure of the cyborg extending beyond its original use in the 1960s space race and Cold War imperialism. And as you explain in the text that we are all 
and always have been cyborgs, complex fusions and unruly assemblages of animal, machine, and human. And since its publishing, the idea has so radically transformed how folks are thinking about human-machine and human-animal relationships across academic disciplines. So I wonder if you could expand on this idea and connect the dots for our listeners, you know, how are you using cyborg imagery as a tool for destabilizing the boundaries we construct between the self, the other, nature, culture, mind, body, animal, human? And why are these troubling dualisms so important to disrupt? First, let me go back to a tiny little uh, word in your question, which is always been cyborgs. I don't think I ever said that. And in, and in fact, uh, we, that is to say, um, those people born into a world in which system sciences, digital apparatuses, uh, coding, digital coding, uh, the war, the electronic battlefield, the Bell telephone system and other communications apparatuses, the biomedical trans, uh, transformation of the organism into a um, not just a system of production and reproduction, which it was, and heat production, which it was in the 19th century, but an information system, which it became through knowledge practices in a very materialist form from the mid 20th century on, that we have become cyber in a particular historical conjuncture, and it's non-optional. Uh, and that knowing something's origins, I can talk to you about the, the ways that certain kinds of capitalist development, certain kinds of Cold War conflict, uh, practices in the communication sciences, in ergonomics, I can talk to you at length and in detail about where the cyborg came from, not just as a figure, but as an actual thing. Uh, a thing, of course, in the entertainment industry, but I mean, I mean, a more complex, embedded, materialist being in the world, not just a figure, never merely a metaphor. For me, figures and materialist, fleshly things um, are very, are, are in a sense imploded. They are profoundly entangled with each other. The figure or the representation is not separated from the thing itself. Rather. Uh, the cyborg, as I propose it, is more an implosion uh, of the figures and of the, the things in the world. So cyborgs come into the world in particular historical conjunction, conjunctions, and they make us who we are, but not evenly, not everywhere, perhaps not everybody, though I think at this point of the more than seven and a half billion people on this planet, no one is untouched by cyborgs and their offspring in the ways worlding is made to work, including the extractions, the exterminations, the migrations, the medicines, the um, systems of governance, the systems of communication. I think truly no one on the earth, no human being, and I would really argue no organism, no, no living being on this earth is untouched by what emerged from the mid-20th century and beyond that I called a kind of cyborg worlding. So it's ongoing, but doesn't remain the same. It's dynamic, it's protean, it's contestable. Knowing something's origins does not determine what happens next. Uh, and people like myself 
try to open the box, to drive in wedges, to increase the degrees of freedom, not in some kind of blissed out techno bunny, technophiliac uh, nonsense, but in an engagement in these worldings, including in play, including opening up the capacities for pleasure and bonding and making kin in new and, and wonderful ways with both humans and non-humans, including technologies as well as critters, a kind of opening up of possibilities, not out of some ridiculous fantasy of infinite possibility, but rather more in the spirit of the Marxist critical theorists who said the established order is not necessary. It is possible and indeed necessary to open up the imagination and to open up the practices for a world which can yet be, but is not yet. Uh, and that's a collective task that can't be done just in the affect of work and critique and condemnation, but has to be done so as to give each other heart for a world which can still be, even in the grip of, of the kinds of, of um, extreme urgency that I think uh, all of us are feeling very deeply. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, Donna. And I feel like I have been working with the urgency so much to not be driven by the urgency, but to also not look away from the urgency or the anxiety that it produces, but not, not live from that place. And it's a challenge every day with what we're going through. Or live, live also from that place. Mm. It seems to me that uh, the, the uh, psychoanalytic doctrines of mourning, as opposed to melancholia, are very helpful here. That in mourning, uh, a subject is able to face loss and understand that loss is real uh, and not reversible and is not the whole story, that, the, that loss can be incorporated into a subject that then becomes other than it was but is uh, in, a, in a vital way, not by forgetting but by remembering vitally so as to make something vital with each other uh, still possible, but without forgetting our mortality. That mourning disowns um, the fantasy of, of transcendence or infinity or deathlessness, but it also disowns melancholia and despair and cynicism. And mourning recognizes real loss. My brother really died. Um, we really have lost an extraordinary number of other living species and, the, and we'll lose more. And it is not reversible. Um, peoples really have lost their land and their livelihoods and are in forced homelessness across the earth. These things are real. And so it's not about not living within that. It's about refusing melancholia. Uh, and insisting on mourning with others so as to find those ways of, of living well as earthlings in a thick present, but without the fantasy that, that denies wounding, that denies death, uh, and denies our own complicity in it. So without denial to live with heart, to live with a sense of, of opening to each other human and non-human. That's what I think the psychoanalytic approach to melancholia can teach us now. Because people, I, I mean, all, um, there was a woman here cleaning my house yesterday. She's an immigrant. She's from El Salvador. 
she is a citizen, which is grounds for incredible celebration, uh, has put together a business, is, is raising children, uh, intense accomplishments, very proud of this, uh, a skilled and hard worker. She, an, a really an astonishing human being. And she and I were admitting to each other from our different situatedness in class and ethnic and national uh, worldings that came together in this business transaction uh, of, a, of house cleaning. She and I were talking to each other about having woken up yesterday, each of us separately, and for reasons we were having a hard time putting our finger on, with a kind of profound sadness. And we decided that what we were feeling was a kind of world sadness, that in each of our cases, our own personal lives are going quite well. Uh, that we have, um, I have friends, I have work, I have recognition, I have other animals. She has what I just described, a business she's proud of, children who are flourishing, a husband who is uh, really putting his weight behind what they're doing together. On the personal level, uh, this is not about sadness, but we were feeling world, a kind of worldly sadness, and that that required some kind of response. Uh, that, but the response can't be cynicism. We have to find the ways to, as Anna Tsing puts it, healing on a damaged planet, uh, the kind of partial healing that produces real vitality and flourishing otherwise, including ways that nobody ever imagined but turned out to be quite amazing. We have to remember the sky has not yet fallen. Mm -hmm. The kind of chicken little move, sky is falling, sky is falling, all true but it's not down yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I liked what you said as well, that we can believe all these truths. We don't have to be in denial, but it's not the whole story. Yes, we are losing 200 species plus a day. Yes, there is insane atrocities happening all over the world, and all that is true, and it's not the full story. We don't know what the full story is, but we also know that we are losing and how to stay with the trouble, how to stay with the truth of the matter, but also being able to find the vitality in the truth and not finding vitality in false solutions, not finding vitality yeah. in being sold some type of fantasy that isn't real, but really being able to find the vitality while holding the immensity of what's happening. I think I know for me is, is a, it's a daily practice. And so everything that you just said, I felt so I'm over here kind of raw, raw, like completely feeling resonant with how you're understanding the weight of the world, because something that I can't stand is being sold fantasies, whether it's an environmental justice fantasy or something like that. I'm so tired of being sold and patronized and yeah, just sold this type of ecological fantasy that we are not in. But how to not be cynical within that is really a challenge. So I I really appreciate your viewpoint. Um, now, I want to go back to the Cyborg Manifesto for a minute, and I'd really like to turn to your critiques of the, let's see, the Marxist, Western-centric white feminism that are outlined in your Cyborg Manifesto and, and really woven, it seems like, throughout your work. And these feminist points of view, as you say, are rooted in problematic definitions of what it means to be a woman, uh, a gender essentialism that further etches harmful dualisms into our cultural psyche and really erases people of color as well as our trans, gender non-conforming, and two-spirit allies. So if you could speak a bit more about this idea of cyborg feminism and how we might 
build strong intersectional movements and inclusive coalitions based on affinity and political kinship rather than just identity. Right. Um, First of all, I think I work by addition and not subtraction. So I am positioned as white through perfectly describable historical and personal processes. I am a Marxist feminist. I have worked out of that heritage with others. I have inherited a great deal for what, from what got named radical feminism or cultural feminism or lesbian feminism or feminism, feminism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All these various names, which are often turned into insults in political practice so as to name one's better position vis-a-vis someone else's less good uh, position. I have been undone and redone by women of color feminisms. I have been undone and redone by indigenous people's struggles, which sometimes, but very carefully, use the term feminism, but more often are going to use other idioms for talking about the care of each other, the making of kin, the care of the earth, um, including the uh, practices of women and two-spirit people in generations, are going to use the word feminism, if at all, with great care. Uh, but with whom alliances can be very deep and very profound. And various speakers will, depending on um, the strategic location in a struggle, uh, adopt and foreground different idioms, not in bad faith, but because of the complexity of these multi-sided struggles. So the cyborg, I think, does not subtract and throw away Um, identity feminisms of various kinds, nor does it ever claim that Marxist feminism worked with the same kind of essentialism that I think certain kinds of radical feminists were accused of doing, which I often think they did not do. And I think the word essentialist is often used as an insult as opposed to a description. And it misdescribes what people might have meant by um, a kind of essential identity or the uh, importance of being a woman. I am not uh, of woman born, for example, an Adrian Rich. One would be a fool to say that was some kind of reductive essentialism. So I tried really hard not to work by subtraction, but to work by addition, uh, which is an intersectionality, particularly as it was taught through the struggle of legal and other practices by U.S. women of color feminists and then expanded and was translated and and recomposed in lots of ways uh, by various uh, figures around the world, both of color and not. Anyway, intersectionality certainly was one of the ways in which one is decomposed and recomposed. But I was, I was throwing out a notion of cyborg feminism as a kind of interrogative, using the, the networking um, and potentialities for alliance and entanglement as a, are we a we? What kind of we can be built that also includes these um, uh, systems apparatuses, these digital apparatuses, these cyborg, and, these cyborg worldings? What kinds of entanglements already exist and can be made stronger and which need to be made weaker. So, yeah, so I don't disavow my Marxist feminism or a bunch of other things. Rather, they get recomposed as other kinds of attachment sites get built um, in the working. So I I think a, a corollary of what I'm saying is that to do this kind of work over time, this kind of work and play with each other, really means you show up 
You show up at the, at the demonstration. You show up at the meeting. You show up at the journal collective. You show up in the writing venture. You read each other's stuff. You read the pamphlets. You, you help write the propaganda. You, you become informed about struggles that are not necessarily your own, but which you're in alliance with, even sometimes from a great distance. That showing up in practice, which takes time, actually showing up is kind of the sine qua non of, of staying with the trouble. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I really like this thought process of adding and not subtracting. And I think it's also a really wonderful way to not be so divisive, especially in movement spaces. So instead of yeah. throwing somebody's theory in their face or saying it's not good enough, but rather taking bits and pieces from them all. And I love how you're saying, uh, I think you were saying being done and undone or uh, over and over again. And I love that being able to be so open to these different ways of knowing and belonging and understanding. And instead of throwing it out, uh, like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, when we get mad at one group or another, but instead really understand what are the pieces that we need to be holding and be adding yeah. to our own understanding of these very complex situations. So I, I really love that. And I, I've been... Yeah. And we can hold, yeah, we can hold on to anger without uh, turning someone into the enemy. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's I'm not saying never be angry or right. never realize others are angry at you. Hold that. Don't walk away from it too fast. Mm-hmm. But it isn't the same thing as being each other's enemy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really feel that. I really feel that. Um, you had mentioned at the beginning of the conversation about, I think, reproductive rights. And I know I have been thinking so much about the politics of reproduction in the body, um, particularly in the past few weeks, as states across the country are passing some of the most restrictive abortion legislation in decades. Uh, just earlier this month, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed a fetal heartbeat bill, HB 481, and that effectively outlaws abortion after six weeks, subjecting people who seek illegal abortions to or terminate their own pregnancies to life imprisonment and the death penalty. I mean, I have chills just thinking about that. And these horrifying bills are but one piece of this country's long history and honestly ongoing legacy of asserting domination and control over people's bodies, particularly those already marginalized. So in light of these complex and, of course, very sensitive issues, how are you thinking about the politics of reproduction, particularly as it relates to our environmental crisis? And I I guess another part to that is, how does your invocation make kin, not babies, relate to a reproductive justice framework, which includes both the right to parent, um, you know, to raise children in a safe, healthy environment, as well as the right to not parent, access to safe abortions, etc. Right, right. So much in that question. Uh, first, a couple of really critical affirmations. Uh, the only person who could possibly make a decision uh, about the intimacy of pregnancy and the outcome of carrying a new life is the woman in whose body it is happening. She is the only imaginable person who could possibly be entrusted with that decision. I may not agree with her decision. Uh, I may have a lot of things to say about it, but it doesn't matter. It, at the end of the day, the only person who could possibly be entrusted with that 
crucial decision is the pregnant woman herself, not pregnant person in the abstract, the actually existing pregnant woman. And anyone who gets in the way of that, that trust, that responsibility, notice I am avoiding the word right. It's not that I don't think it's a right uh, in the context of our legal system, it's that I think the more profound issue is uh, that there is nobody else in the intimacy of the situation uh, who could possibly be entrusted, make the decision. So uh, I think that's a reproductive trust position more than a reproductive rights position. It's crucial to reproductive justice, but it's radically insufficient. (laughs) A reproductive justice position is about the capacity to bring future generations into the world in health and safety and joy and flourishing and all that that takes in immigration policy, in housing, in agriculture, in medicine, in uh, contraceptive technology that actually existing people actually want to use as opposed to long-acting imposables that uh, have a, a quite different political register to them. Um, the the ongoing investment in new kinds of contraceptive technologies that are really uh, what people want, uh, a kind of comprehensive politics, practice, science, alliance building for making generations, which I would in a shorthand call a pro-child world, but a non-natalist world. It's not anti-natalist. It doesn't say that anyone who gets pregnant and has a baby is somehow doing a terrible thing. I, I don't think that for a minute. And I think people are situated quite differently. And I think human babies smell almost as good as puppies. <laughs> In other words, I think what I'm saying is I think I understand a little bit of the incredible sensuality of the um, of bringing a baby into presence, including the anger and the horror and the depression and you know all of the affects that are involved in that, uh, bringing a new person into the world, all of it. I think that every born one requires all of our support. And human persons, namely women, who are bringing these beings into the world uh, simply must be trusted, whether I think it's a good idea or not. They simply must be trusted. And the whole apparatus of making kin with much less natalism and much more making kin non-natally is, in my view, urgent. I think that we now are about 7.6 billion human beings alive on the planet today. The rich fractions of that population are using up the resources of this planet at an extraordinarily rapid rate with extreme injustice to the more marginalized um, members of this population who may be um, having babies at a higher rate. But frankly, uh, poor people are not having babies at a much higher rate than rich people, oftentimes actually a lower rate. Those populations still having babies at a fairly high rate are the most marginalized, the most subject to permanent war and extraction and exterminationism that the great majority of groupings of people on the on this planet are having babies uh, at a quite low rate, but the already existing young women who have not yet had even a single baby guarantee that the population will continue to grow through the end of the current century to about 11.2 billion people. It's almost impossible not to happen. And it will only be that small if reproductive rates continue to fall. If they remain stable or grow, that 11.2 billion is radically uh, too small a number. 
So I think it's really, 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 really important for people who think of themselves as part of reproductive justice work, part of progressive work broadly, part of creative ecologies, to really think about human numbers and our impacts and the differentiated quality of those impacts, questions of justice and capitalism and distribution. But not to talk about human numbering feels to me a kind of denialism. Now, you also talk about this briefly in your film, Storytelling for Earthly Survival, a collaboration with uh, Fabrizio Terranova. But I think there's so much to be said for investing in non-heteronormative joy and belonging. And I really love your idea um, of creating rituals that celebrate making family beyond the imperative of biological reproduction. But rather than always treating this as a tragedy or a loss and in many ways a kind of Or a substitute. Yeah, or a substitute or a kind of even failed femininity or motherhood. You know, this nuclear family in particular, it is such a dominant framework in the American mythic imagination. So I'm wondering how can we recover a sense of wholeness, of deep relationality and belonging with our non-natal or non-genealogical uh, kin? Well, two ways. One is in the mode of historical memory and critique, which is really getting it, that the white heteronormative nuclear family is an historical invention. It's fairly recent. Uh, its post-World War II instantiation was absolutely part of the spread of U.S. imperialism and its models, including its population control models. Uh, that the white heteronormative nuclear family is an instrument and uh, not human nature, a kind of constant uh, refining of that critique, I think, is important. And then the other uh, is recognizing how much non-natalist kin uh, we already are engaged in. By the way, I'm not for a minute not talking about loving my brothers and, you know, I'm not talking about disowning in some sense one's natal family or... Uh, the bringing a baby into the world with another person who's also a parent isn't part of that. But these are foreground, background, and addition operations, not substitute. Uh, and I actually think a fairly small number of women really, really seriously want or need to have a baby. Um, and most of us neither want to nor need to in circumstances in which living with generations, um, living with the old and the young and with each other, affirming the financial uh, wherewithal to do that, uh, affirming adoption, affirming um, making financial arrangements to take care of friends, not just in the heteronormative um, you know, uh, gay marriage model, which I agree is a civil right, but I also think was in many ways a profound loss uh, in our thinking about sexual liberation, that uh, the kind of what do we need in architecture, what do we need in legal instruments, what do we need in law, 
uh, in, uh, legal instruments, what do we need in mortgage, financial instruments, what do we need in celebrations, national festivals for adoption, including adults adopting other adults, uh, what would it actually take to have a national festival or local festivals where communities that are in place uh, adopt in all seriousness and for a period of at least two generations, an immigrant um, family or group? What, what would it take actually to create um, the conditions that don't just depend on individual goodwill, where people can, uh, you know, where people can actually rely on each other for affective help, for material help, for celebrating each other's kin. Uh, what would it take to match, say, uh, immigrant families with resident families over two generations, to promise that to each other? Um, and what kinds of um, tax structures would make that possible so it doesn't depend on goodwill and philanthropy? Uh, if we really thought about what it would take to, uh, to make kin in the, in the mode of addition, non-natally, non-natalistly, <laughs> which is an ugly word, <laughs> making kin that gives genealogical continuity, because I think, you know, Marshall Salins and others who theorize kinship, David Schneider, others... Marilyn Strathern, if you have a, if you have a cousin, a cousin has you. If you have a dog, a dog has you. If you have a kin, a kin has you. If you have a relative, a relative has you. Kinship is reciprocal and it's non-optional and it goes on into the future. It reaches into the past. It reaches into the future. It's generational. Kinship has to loop through time. So what kind of kinship invention, as well as inheritance, are we talking about? And many groupings of people on this planet, Kim Talbert writes about it eloquently when she talks about beyond settler sexualities and talks about some of the inherited uh, practices of kin making and generational care that she both experienced and proposes to strengthen the Lakota families that she grew up with. There's plenty on the earth already uh, that, it, that um, offers teachings in actual practice. Uh, as well as in our own lives. Many of us have lived in communes. My first husband was gay, and I was part of a, a non-heteronormative gay world uh, in a way that was it was really kind of an amazing time of my life. You know, there are children that I inherited from the, those groupings that are my lifetime kin. You know, I'm the godmother to a, a boy who was adopted from Guatemala by a close colleague and friend, all of the complexities of international adoption are surely built into that. We inherit the complexities, all of them, including the histories of U.S. imperialism. We don't, these are not innocent acts, but they make kin, emphasizing that making kin does not require making babies, and that we need many fewer babies who are much better taken care of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with you. When... Um... We were researching for this episode. I came across this term, forced life, coined by Eric Stanley in an interview with you and Sarah Franklin in 2017. And there's a quote that I'd like to read. Forced life is not the organization of the forces of life and death for flourishing, but rather for extractive profit. It's about ecological obliteration through turning all of the earth into nothing but a resource for keeping human beings alive and growing, end quote. And I think this is such an important point, an alternative way They're to so circle, <laughs> yeah, to just circle around the larger questions of life and death and disposability um, in these critical times. And that we really must consider not only 
who is made to die under systems of oppression, but also who is forced to live in cruel, exploitative, and unethical ways. And and so I'm just, you know, I'm wondering, where do you see examples or moments of forced life in our societies today? For me, I think uh, so many things, but one of which I think about the biotech industry and Monsanto, which spends millions of dollars a year trying to sell an empty vision of survival and planetary future that is completely devoid of biodiversity, a kind of forced life that extinguishes the human spirit and violates our sacred connection to the earth. So, yeah. Not, I to, have, ma- not to mention, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and they're also trying to, well, I, I also think about Monsanto and uh, interviewing you know people who have known people who work there, and they actually think that they are supporting life. So again, it's this forced life, this imprisonment of of life itself. It's um, yeah, so many thoughts around that. But I'd love to open this up to you and hear what you think about it. Yeah, well, life is such an abstraction. Mm. But people who work at Monsanto, often in good faith, really are promoting systems of raising food that they think of as essential to feeding the numbers of human beings alive on this planet. And I think they really do understand this takes radically simplified ecological systems um, that displace risks um, in a way that they think is tolerable. I don't think they're fools. And I don't think they're necessarily, depending on how a converse, how an engagement occurs on an individual level, they're certainly not necessarily enemies. I think the corporate capitalism of Monsanto, I think, is an enemy. Mm-hmm. But I think we would be in error uh, to dismiss all of the people working for Monsanto as enemies. But uh, let me go back to Eric Stanley, who's a, a just a wonderful, beautiful human being. He was um, he was writing a dissertation with me at the time that he taught me about forced life. Forced death was much on the critical theory agenda at the time, and Eric, who was uh, profoundly involved um, in prison politics, in prison uh, prison abolition, and prison um, alternatives to prison politics, human prison politics, and the forced life of prisoners. There's capital punishment, but much, perhaps much worse, or in any case, in, um, in relationship with capital punishment, is the forced life of captivity, the forced life of slavery, and the forced life of prisons. Not the same thing, but certain kinds of historical continuities. And always, Eric has been, um, he was uh, part of animal rights activism, animal radical animal rights activism, uh, legal and less than legal. <laughs> anyway, anyway uh, people that, that he was living with were vulnerable to arrest and other and raids and many other kinds of things. Um, activist radical politics around other living beings, animals uh, in captivity in the agribusiness food complex um, in particular. The research animal issue was, uh, Eric thought of as somewhat more complicated, but he was pretty radical on that too. Eric really taught me that I had to pay attention to forced life in order to kill. So if we think of the many billions of chickens uh, forcibly made to live each year in order to market their flesh for uh, profit, but also in order to produce protein for protein deficient populations, and also in order to produce meat for a growing global middle class, same could be said with with pigs and, um, and cattle and other Uh, quote-unquote meat animals, the working meat animals, the agro-industrial meat complex. 
Uh, Eric was the one who forced me to pay attention to the way capitalist forced life worked and the abstraction life so that the actual living being uh, ends up having no place. Similarly, with pro-life politics, the actual living pregnant woman or not yet pregnant woman, <laughs> the actual woman Play, uh, the actual living person is not present in a notion of pro-life. Life is a radically destructive abstraction. And I think that, that substituting living being, living person, living plant, living animal, every chance we get, and then ask who lives and who dies in these assemblages. So Annette Singh and I have been working on a notion of plantationocene, in interesting connection with Anthropocene and Capitalocene and my Thulocene at the time of the earthly ones, namely paying attention to the 500-year history approximately of radical ecological simplification, forced labor systems. Uh, African slavery is the, the in a crucial case that transforms the world. Radical ecological simplification, radical forced labor, substitution of the existing living beings in a place with other living beings brought from elsewhere such that they have no refuge. Captives can't run away because they have no kin nearby, that kind of thing. Um, the way the plantation of scene transformed the earth and became the model for capitalism. Uh, including to this day, the palm plantations, the monocropping systems, the forced vulnerable migrant labor systems in the Central Valley of California who drink dirty water even while the plants get all the clean water. Uh, you know, the good water is directed toward the agribusiness crops for, for global marketing. The actual communities, legal and illegal, living in the Salinas and Central Valley are drinking heavily polluted water. If there isn't a more materialist proof you know, of the uh, ongoing nature of the plantation scene. I don't know, you know, what would be. So um, I'm not a pro-life activist anywhere, including in my um, relationship to other living beings. And I, and I think killing is a complex matter. I do, in fact, buy and eat meat. Um, because I, I feel an obligation that all of the working food and fiber animals of the world not become nothing but museum pieces or heritage animals. But that is a very difficult, and uh, I'm not sure that's the right decision. Uh, I am compelled by my vegan colleagues to think that's a really iffy decision to, to make. I'm still making it, still proposing it. Uh, I uh, living in the in the difficulties of complex decisions, but opposing the agro-industrial forced life complex that Eric Stanley was talking about. Surely that's easy, or at least easy as a decision, if not always easy to know what to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you had mentioned the Thula scene, which you write about in your book, "Staying with the Trouble: Making Kin in the Thula Scene," and. I, you, you also just mentioned the capitalist Socene, and um, of course, many of the listeners are really familiar with the Anthropocene and all these, all the scenes. But I would really love for you to unpack these words because you give so much care to terminology and the linguistic origin of the words and their historic and literary context. So, yeah, if you could unpack a few of these terms the Thulacine um, mm -hmm. particularly, mm -hmm. and then just the multiplicity mm -hmm. of meanings that they carry and why they are really important tools. 
So I'm not in favor of just multiplying words for the playful pleasure of it all, though one might take 10 minutes in a day to do that and then stop it. (laughs) I want words that actually do some work, you know, that help collect us up in order to uh, live, live and die better with each other. So Anthropocene, scene, the suffix scene, kainos, it means um, a time. It is, it is a time of a thick present. It is the time of the recent, the time of now. So the, the suffix scene doesn't mean a visual scene. It's rather a temporal term. It's about a thickness of now. So the Anthropocene was proposed for the thickness of the now in which human beings become a planetary transformative force of a, of a, of a dominant kind. Uh, and I, I and many others did not like the term because I think it mistakenly ascribed to human beings as a species what I think are the actions Uh, the systemic actions of historically located people over about a 500-year period, um, which might be better named the Capitalocene, the time of the emergence of capitalism. And then, as I just described, the Plantationocene, the the, uh, beginning of all of this really was in the uh, invention of um, of the plantation and its slave labor systems and all that followed from that. But all of that's well and good, both as critique and as making us foreground very important historical processes, foreground what continues and what doesn't, foreground what kinds of actions might be, need to be taken and what is already being done. But I proposed the Thulu scene also, not instead of, but also, because I wanted to emphasize the time of the earthly ones, the time of the phonic ones, of the tentacular and muddy and living and dying ones of the earth, the time of earthlings, not captured in all of these other formations, co-temporary with them, both old and now and yet to come, uh, and that play and that are deeply in play in the world, and not innocent, not necessarily nice. You know, uh, the, the notion that the Thulucene is the time of the, the happy phonic earthlings is nonsense because the earth itself, Bruno Latour and Isabel Stangers in different ways talk about this. The earth itself is in revolt. The earth itself is rising against its destroyers. Uh, Joe, uh, in his new book, Down to Earth, Bruno Latour talks about the geosocial classes of the earth and the off-world classes of the destroyers, and that those of us who are in and of the earth um, and are at stake to the the forces of destruction um, must rise up with the earth against the destroyers. It's a very interesting political fiction that he's developing in his little book, Down to Earth. So the Thulu scene developed for me from the word phonic, or the uh, the Greek root um, of the of the earthly ones, not not just necessarily under the earth, under the waters, but those of the earth, all of us with each other in these other in these coterminous cotemp- in these cotemporalities. That's what I was trying to do. I think I made an oral mistake, a mistake of the ear, by calling it Thulucene instead of Thanosine, because I hadn't yet read Lovecraft. Actually, I confess that I still haven't. But obviously, his Cthulhu 
uh, was in my head, because I am a reader of science fiction. Of course, it's in the air I breathe. Uh, it was unconscious. It was way too late before I realized that my Thulu scene was going to evoke his Cthulhu wrongly, because his tentacular patriarchal monster of the deep, Cthulhu, is not related to my Thulu. So by a pronunciation trick, emphasizing the soft phonic, I hope to differentiate it. But it, it was really a mistake on my part not to call it the Thanosine. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, I love where your mind weaves with these words, and I think they are really important. And another one that I have felt really connected to is the Aramacene, uh, what some people call the age of loneliness. And I feel that yeah, um, yeah. that really resonates with me and yeah, how yeah. I feel on the daily. Um, but yeah. I, I want to circle back to the, our conversation around technology that we were having at the beginning. And, you know, technology just, it encircles us every day. It lives inside us, among our bodies. Uh, it really even co-creates life itself. And you write, quote, the machine is not an it to be animated, worshipped, and dominated. The machine is us, our processes, an aspect of our embodiment. We can be responsible for machines. They do not dominate or threaten us. We are responsible for boundaries. We are they, end quote. And there is no doubt in my mind that we are bound up in and among technology you know, from the medicine we put in our bodies to the networks of telecommunication bringing you this podcast today. And and I guess at the same time, I can't help but envision the potential catastrophic and exploitative endings of further technological development and growth, you know, let alone the mining of rare earth minerals and toxic byproducts. So I guess what I'm wondering is how you make sense of these bioethical dilemmas, you know, wade through the complexities of this field and bend technology towards radical emancipation and liberation. Hard issue. And um, one of the things I keep needing to remind myself of is uh, we don't have to start from scratch. Mm. Lots of people, including scientists, are already doing the very work you're describing. Uh, and that technology is not uh, doesn't have some kind of necessary teleological trajectory toward the apocalypse. That produces some kind of fantastic, paralyzing notion of capital T technology. Mm. And that is not technology. Technological practices, technologies, uh, many of them are in the service of extraction and exterminism. Uh, many of the uh, financial uh, agglomerations that are practicing these things, including through financialization uh, and abstraction from all kinds of material forms, as well as those kinds of technologies that produce uh, guns for hire, science for hire to deny, let's say, uh, the known medical effects of tobacco or the known um, planetary effects of, of global um, of, of climate warming of climate change, the kind of science for hire that goes on. All of these things are happening, and they're quite powerful. And I know a whole lot of scientists, and I am a scientist myself, and my partner is a software program designer. Uh, and I know a whole lot of people who, have, who practice on a daily basis the skills of system design and all the rest of it, 
who are who enlist these practices for uh, for care and justice, who enlist these practices for kin making non-natally, who are serious about um, you know the kinds of contraception that would really be useful, which might very well also be biomolecular. Uh, the the kinds of communications devices that perhaps have a lower carbon footprint um, than physical travel. Um, does the cloud that houses our program right now actually have a lower carbon footprint than my, um, you know, coming somewhere in person for an interview? Well, we should measure these very things. So I think I'm saying at least three things. One is uh, to remember we're not starting from scratch to refuse the deification of technology, refuse making it an abstraction, capital T, and giving it a, you know, barely secularized Christian zoom out to the apocalypse, to remember all of the people who are working very effectively and join with them, um, and then also a kind of, um, what, a kind of jouissance, a kind of, uh, a kind of reveling in the, in the, in the profound material opening up of possibilities to understand how an electron transport system works, uh, to see a picture of a black hole, to uh, understand some of the ways that canine and human cognitive practices are both similar and different, to, to, to know something about how to analyze the semiotics of chemical tropisms or of human language, to take up the technical capacities that have been made available to us um, in the last many decades and to celebrate them as opposed to demonize them and think of them as always leading toward destruction. I think that the more we are not literate in some abstract sense, but literate in the sense of understanding the, the opening up of worlds so as to engage in those worlds for care and justice, uh, the more powerful players we will be for science for the people or for uh, water defenders or for uncommoning the commons so that indigenous ways of knowing and scientific ways of knowing can actually form contact zones. That's Marisol de la Cadena's term. Or working by addition, that's Vincent Despre's methodological principle that I took up. I think the more we um, immerse ourselves, among other things, in the sheer the sheer amazing quality of scientific and technical practices uh, that open up the world in um, extraordinary ways for living and dying well with each other, the more powerful we will be in making that happen. Mm. I have this quote, another quote of yours from Staying with the Trouble, and it's about the immense power of storytelling and it kind of reminded me when you were speaking just just now about how we structure our thought processes and questioning. And this quote goes, it matters what matters we use to think other matters with. It matters what stories we tell to tell other stories with. It matters what knots, not knots, what thoughts think thoughts, what descriptions describe descriptions, what tie what ties tie ties it matters what stories make worlds what worlds make stories end quote oh my gosh i've read this quote so many times and i love the emphasis in this text on the importance not only of weaving new stories for just and abundant futures but also the process itself you know how we tell stories who spins new narratives what 
is or what is being centered and given breath for new life. So I'd love if you could say more about storytelling as a working practice, uh, storytelling as thinking, doing, cat's cradle. Yeah. One really obvious example of it matters what stories, 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 or what thoughts think thoughts, or what cognitive apparatuses, you know, think cognitive, what sciences, you know, do science with sciences. One way of, of illustrating that is using what um, my colleague Susan Harding and my godson Marco Harding gave to me through their engagement with um, uh, the Inuit of Anunavut and with the circumpolar north around the notion of sila translated by Anglophone Southerners often as weather, but for Inuktitut speakers is a much more um, multivalent complex term of the gathering up the airs and the waters and the processes of the land and the waters and the airs that make the people human and non-human. Sila is um, an, uh, a whole way of worlding. What happens if that is put into connection with Southerners' notions of climate change, not so as to condemn Southerners' notions of climate change or turn uh, Inuit ways of thinking in terms of sila in you know, traditional thinking savior mode, but engage the two so that these ways of knowing are both regarded as actual knowing, not one being culture and the other being science, actual ways of knowing that come together around a shared urgency, let's say the changing of the sea ice in the summer uh, in the circumpolar north, particularly in the face of the powerful nations of the circumpolar north trying to open up the sea lanes and the drilling practices to extract the last calorie of petrochemical fossil fuel from the Arctic region. So shared urgency to um, really important ways of knowing and acting and being and engaging with urgency, how to do that in a way that doesn't reproduce colonial science. That seems to me a real question on the ground right now with real people. And it's an example of which stories, 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 both stories, 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 and another story emerges if we're really lucky. <laughs> So it was Marilyn Strathairn, the anthropologist who had been working with Highland Papua New Guinea people uh, in all sorts of ways, and also in uh, English people, particularly in the ways they did kinship uh, relationalities, also the way they did money and business and how wealth grows and who grows wealth and how it's transferred, these kinds of things. She was the one who taught me uh, basically that it matters which thoughts think thoughts. And if you think English systems with uh, Haganer systems, not Papua New Guinea as some sort of abstract whole, but with a, if you think a certain region of English kinship systems with a certain region of Papua New Guinea kinship systems and actual thinking practices, such as you see things in each thinking practice you could not have seen if you made one normalize the other. So you don't let the thinking practices, you don't let one normalize the other. Usually the more dominant normalizes the more subordinate. Keep them both abnormal, if you will. Keep them both questioning each other. Then something happens that you couldn't think, that nobody could think otherwise. And it seems to me that's what we need to learn to do more of in the face of our current urgencies. <laughs>
So to begin to bring this incredible conversation to a close, I would really appreciate it if you would share with our listeners, you know, any personal practices or exercises that we might take to cultivate this sense of responsibility. The capacity to respond. So uh, what is to be done You know, is, is uh, what I take to be your question. And I think it goes back to what I said earlier in our conversation, which is showing up, which is going to the meeting we're afraid of, where we've been criticized. In my case, for example, going uh, to a meeting around sexual harassment for a professor in my college who was abusive when I took early actions that really offended some of the women in question, showing up still uh, responsively and not always being right. Uh, the capacity to recognize perhaps that one was wrong, but also holding on to the core of what one was trying to do that is still right. The capacity, in other words, to be with each other in our mistakes, in our political groups, in our actions, um, showing up for, actually, I didn't go to the demonstration at the the clock today in downtown Santa Cruz uh, for reproductive justice because I was here for the here for the interview. But at least both you and I are showing up for something important that is related to reproductive justice. Show up, um, take the responsibility to learn something about something. And if we're a good enough writer, then write something. If we're a musician, do do the music. If we're a parent, really take the parenting uh, to to that kind of practice that is that makes the world a better place, not just for one's own child, but for for the young. So I think it's showing up. It's not like we lack organizations or issues or those kinds of things we can join with the ACLU, uh, prison abolition, um, reproductive justice, care of of migrants. Uh, it's not like we lack plenty that is going on and people who are organized to do it. Uh, I think it's incumbent on us to make certain choices because nobody can do everything Mm -hmm. uh, and show up and publicize what what other people are doing. I think it is our job to go visiting in Hannah Arendt's sense, to make the world uh, a bigger place in that sense Um, And in a finite way, by not pretending that any of us don't make mistakes or can do everything. Mm -hmm. I'm so with you. I've felt that in the last few years, especially trying to become an activist and being more engaged and realizing there's times that I'm going to make mistakes. There's times I'm going to embarrass myself. There's times that I'm not always going to be right. Many times I won't be. But the commitment and the dedication to continue to show up time and time again um, and the showing up, I think, is so much of the work and also the beauty of the wor- of doing it and, and how to really create bonds, trust, allyship, continue to show up, continue mm-hmm. to show up, not, not never make a mistake, not always be perfect. But I think a lot of what can happen to people is there's so much care, there's so much love, there might be anxiety, fear, sadness, mourning, grief. They show up to something and maybe something turns them off, they make a mistake and then they're too afraid to go back or they think that, you know, for whatever reason, whether unworthiness or fear, um, it stops them from being engaged and how to get over that hump mm-hmm. to say, no, I'm going to keep being engaged. 
Um, mm-hmm. and I'm, and it's going to be uncomfortable at times and that's okay. It's okay to be in that it's discomfort okay. and to stretch and to bend and to be embarrassed at times. Like we can get back on the horse, so to speak. And, um, yeah. I think that's such, and we can forgive someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can give mm-hmm. people, we can get it that if we're really going to build movements that endure, uh, that have the complexity they've got to have, um, we can we can name our own and other people's total screw-ups. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can call each other to account. In fact, we really have to learn how to do that with, with that kind of capacity to forgive each other, mm-hmm. um, to, to actually uh, go on with each other in recognition of, of normal imperfection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that I think that a lot of times we screw each other up by a fantasy of mm-hmm. innocence or perfection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, people can make really terribly serious mistakes, including ones uh, that they're not about to recognize as mistakes, but I may think they were a mistake. Find the point of union and build on it, because very, I think very few of us are really each other's enemies. Mm-hmm. And our real enemies deserve our full energy. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with you. I, I've thought so many times uh, about the infighting in the movement spaces. Like, oh my gosh, we're spending so much time demonizing each other, yet the fight is out of the room. And then we can be so exhausted and so emotionally wounded by the people who we're trying to work with against, you know, the Goliath, so to speak, of what we're up against. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, we're, we're drained by the time we get to the big fight because yeah. we have such a hard time. Uh, working together. And I, (laughs) oh oh my gosh, Donna, this is so challenging to end this conversation because I feel like I just want to keep talking to you for hours and hours and every wormhole opens up and then I want to dive in with you and go into this, this crack in that corner. And, and just, you are, uh, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with anyone on the show who has, who has brought to the table what you've brought with so much beauty and complexity and interwoven connections. And I've taken away so much from this conversation. I honestly have taken, uh, I have taken a bit of forgiveness for, uh, yeah, I do feel a bit of forgiveness. I feel also, um, I don't know what the word would be. I, some, something wants me to say relief. Something wants me to say hope, which I don't like that word at all. I have a, an allergic reaction to the word hope. Yeah, yeah. But For there's, good reason. <laughs> yeah, but there's a sense of maybe expansion, maybe openingness. Like there is room for more. There is room for more understanding in these issues. Um, so it's, I know that everybody who will be listening to this soon will feel probably as blown away as I am by what you've brought to us. And I'm really grateful for you, Donna. Well, thank you. And some of those folks are going to remember why they're also mad at me, Mm. uh, which is really good. Uh, I don't, you know, I'm really serious about holding on to uh, all of it Mm -hmm. um, because that's the only way we will make each other stronger. Mm. Mm-hmm. Can I go out on a little story? Please, please, please. <laughs> <laughs> it actually goes back to before the Cyborg Manifesto, but it goes back to your questions about science and technology. This goes back to 1968 in New Haven. 
uh, and my experience of women's liberation consciousness raising groups in that period, and my being a biology graduate student. And I experienced in the consciousness raising groups in New Haven in that period a kind of um, oh, imperative, a kind of spoken and unspoken imperative that what women should be speaking to each other um, it was sexual violation, hmm. uh, sexuality, sexual violation, sexual subjectivity, so on, so on, so on, all very important. Now, I certainly had my share. I listened to other. It's not like I thought that was wrong exactly, except I felt like I was coming into being a female subject in the world otherwise, and it was in a kind of becoming with the electron transport system and the mitochondria and chloroplasts in a plant cell. And that I had just come out of a lecture in molecular biochemistry, cellular molecular biochemistry, and I was walking along the streets of New Haven, and it was spring. The trees were leafing out, and I had this profound sense that you just described in terms of when you fell in love with the forest, a profound sense of oneness, a kind of coming into oneness with the burgeoning leaves of the tree that was made potent for me by a profound imagination of how the electron transport systems and oxidation reduction reactions uh, and heme molecules and all the rest of it, how the molecular biochemistry of the burgeoning leaves was working was part of my coming into an erotic oneness, including a kind of whole body lubrication, a kind of profound erotic oneness. So I went back to my consciousness raising group and told the story of my coming into sexual subjectivity through this kind of electron transport system. And I, I it, was, it was a moment of um, incomprehension of uh, this isn't sexuality. And then Somehow, because we were all doing this with each other, a kind of collective getting it about the way eros uh, permeates a becoming with, and that becoming female in this moment of women's liberation really did have also to do with the electron transport system and the chloroplasts and mitochondria in these burgeoning leaves. So it was my consciousness-raising story of sexual subjectivity. My goodness, Donna. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for closing on such a beautiful story. And I already would love to have another conversation with you again, because I feel like I'm going to listen to this conversation and I'm going to have so many awakenings and notes and um and like you said, holding all the feelings, holding it all, holding the anger, the the love, the admiration, being able to really sit with all the feelings and not demonizing one or the other, not making one wrong and one right, getting out of that, what you were saying, like colonial Protestant mindset that there has to be, it has to be either or, it has to be bad, good. Um, so I, I have so much to soak in with this conversation and hopefully we'll meet at some point in person in the Redwoods as we both are as we both belong to this forest, this incredible yeah. redwood um, wonderland. And yeah, this has just been, I don't, beyond words that I can describe right now. Well, thanks for the conversation. It, uh, it, it's really a privilege for someone, for you 
uh, to have, have done this. A privilege for me that you did this. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. The music you heard today was by Jeremy Harris. I'd like to thank our deeply dedicated team, podcast production and editing, Andrew Stores, writing and lead research, Francesca Glassbell, outreach and research, Hannah Wilton and Aidan McRae, podcast music, Carter Lou McElroy, digital community organizing, Aaron Wise. Graphic and web design, Erica Ekram, and Melanie Younger with Partnerships in Media. <laughs> <laughs>